Welcome to FedWatch, a Bitcoin magazine podcast. Before we get into the show, let's give a quick shout out to our sponsors. First and foremost, you know who it is. It is Swan Bitcoin. This is one of the best places to stack stats in America. They are available in 49 states and they look nothing like Coinbase. They look nothing like Kraken. It is not a trading interface. It is really a place that you can send your mom, your aunt, your sister, whoever is not, you don't want them to see some crazy altcoin chart and, you know, all this trading UX. You want them to be saving Bitcoin. Swan, to have this thing is called the sentence. You walk through the sentence, you say how much I want to save, how often I want to save it, and to what address I want to send it to. It's really that easy. Check out Swan Bitcoin at swanbitcoin.com. Next up, eToro. For those of you who are into trading, (laughs) check out eToro. eToro is an amazing one-stop shop where you can buy Bitcoin and pull it off the exchange, but you can do so much more. You can index invest. You can test out your TA skills on a virtual platform where it has no real skin in the game, or you can copy trade the best traders. You are passively getting exposure to an active trading strategy. Check out eToro at eToro.com. Last but not least is BISC. BISC is an awesome, awesome application that enables you to buy Bitcoin and sell Bitcoin without having to register with the service. You download the BISC software. You use the BISC software to coordinate with other buyers and sellers, and you can buy Bitcoin in a very, very easy way from the safety of your home without having to participate in KYC or any of that other kind of registration activity. Highly recommend to give BISC a try. Amazing open source project, amazing platform, and again, very, very easy to use. Check out BISC. All right, Ansel, welcome back to the next episode of FedWatch. Um, After getting some feedback, Ansel and I have decided to slightly change up the format of the show, and we are going to be doing some segments here. So uh, from here on out, we're going to do a FedWatch segment where we kind of comment on the latest that's happening with central bank policy. Then we're going to touch on macro, um, just talking macro more generally. Uh, Then we're going to touch on Bitcoin specifically. and we're going to have exiting comments, you know, just on whatever is relevant. Um, so we got a really great show for you guys. I think the main point that we're going to focus on here is really trying to get you guys up to date on what the Fed and other major central banks have been doing since the beginning of uh, coronavirus related QE activities. So um, I guess let's just get into it. Uh, Ansel, welcome back to the show. Um, why don't we get started? You have some stats here. Uh, regarding updates to the Fed's balance sheet. Thanks, Christian. Um, yeah, I just had real quick thing to add about the these segments. I think this makes it really easy for people to send in questions too. So uh, maybe in the future we could do a Q and A episode. That'd be kind of fun. Okay. Yeah, I just have some stuff here on updating for what the Fed is doing, and I'll put them in my show notes and and. Christian, you have these links, so maybe they can get onto the regular show notes. uh, We should consolidate that. (laughs) Yeah, we should. But yeah, the Fed balance sheet is over $7 trillion now, which is pretty insane. Uh, It's gone up about 70%, I believe, since since March. So it is 
obviously more in absolute terms than the first QE back in 2008, but it is smaller percentage. So the, the QE back in 2008 and nine was a lot faster relative to their previous balance sheet than what they're doing right now. So uh, you think it's crazy. It probably could get way, way crazier. Do you have kind of numbers uh, top of mind around like balance sheet versus QE activity in 2008-9 versus uh, starting balance sheet and QE activity now? By this point, like two months in to QE the first time, um, I believe that they were already over 100% of their previous balance sheet. So they had expanded by 100% by this time. And right now we're only at 70%. Overall balance sheet, exponentially bigger percentage of balance sheet. We're not quite at 100% yet, but we're getting there. Yeah, most likely. Uh, they have been tapering, quote unquote tapering. I think they're down to like $4 billion a day, which is roughly $100 billion per month. That's the pace that they are currently on. So yeah, it's just going to keep growing to about $100 billion a month for as far as I can see, most likely. And then if, well, if there's another crisis, you know, like if the stock market crashes again or there's a wave of defaults or something, uh, they'll have to launch another trillion dollar package. So it's at least a hundred million a month or so hundred billion a month. How would you characterize this activity? Is this effectively like uh, UBI for corporations and, and big and big institutions? What they're doing here, uh, according to the textbook, is they're pumping money in, right? They're buying assets, exchanging dollars for those assets. And then supposedly uh, the banks will lend that out into the economy and create stimulus. But what's going on right now is this, the money is not circulating. The money is just going onto the reserves at the, um, at the fed and collecting dust. So they're not really stimulating. They're just adding to everyone's balance sheet. So I guess slightly unrelated, but I mean, and we're going to talk about it later, but if they're not really stimulating, why is the stock market pumping? We've passed all-time highs across many of the major stocks and indices. Personally, I'm a little surprised, but maybe I shouldn't be. Curious to get your take on that. Well, yeah, there's any number of reasons that could happen. Um, uh, You know, it's a belief in a Fed put. And Powell went on to 60 Minutes and said, we will do anything. We can print unlimited money. And so I think that just kind of pumped people up, got their confidence up, and they went in and bought. Yeah, so Robinhood uh, set up. 7 million new users, I believe in the second half of 2019, but they weren't buying and they took a survey of their users and they said, well, stocks are too expensive. Well, now stocks crashed and now we have like crazy amount of retail buying and stocks are just being pumped up. I mean, the volume is ridiculously high on all the stock markets. So, and this isn't just a U.S. phenomenon either. You know, all stock markets around the world have bounced like this. Uh, the U.S. is outpacing them, maybe two to one on this bounce, but everybody has turned around and going back up. First, you actually posted a chart about this yesterday, which uh, mm-hmm. I retweeted and I thought was really re- was really interesting. But everyone's buying the dip. We're seeing a V-shaped recovery across the board. Is this sustainable? I don't think it is. Um, it's, I mean, earnings are going down, right? And prices are going up. So the PE ratios are just getting blown out. Um, if pretty much by any measure, it's a extremely overheated market, massively overbought. It's just a matter of time, whether it's this week or next week or next month, it's going to come back down. And I believe it's going to visit the lows again. I don't know how fast that will happen. Timing is always key here. And that is always the hard part. You can be directionally right, but have the timing completely off. 
Um, let's get back to kind of what we have laid out here. Um, you have uh, some information from Silicon Valley Bank, and you you wanted to explain like the spectrum of of these asset purchases. Can you one lay the groundwork from for people that may be new? Like, what is this activity of purchasing assets uh, by the Fed, and then uh, we can get into that specific spectrum. Yeah. So when we say asset purchases, we just mean basically bonds or packaged bonds, bundled bonds, however you want to say that. QE is specifically buying U.S. treasuries or mortgage-backed securities. Um, And that would be mortgage-backed securities are bundled mortgages that your bank sells off. So you get your loan from the bank or your mortgage from the bank, and they sell that to a mortgage bundler and they bundle it up and sell it off. So um, the Fed, when they do QE, they're buying these assets, but they have started a lot of new programs even since March. And uh, the link I have from Silicon Valley Bank is it has a really nice table and it goes through each different program. I believe the latest one, yeah, this is current as of April 6th. So but between like March 1st and April 6th, they have created about seven new types of ways to buy different bonds, different securities. Um, It's pretty crazy. Uh, I think the craziest thing is they're buying straight corporate bonds and whether those bonds are good investment grade or junk, they're still buying all of that. Why is buying corporate bonds so crazy? So junk bonds are just higher risk. So they have a higher return and they're uh, what is it? I think it's um B rated. I think if it's below double B, then it uh, is no longer available for like major hedge funds or, or certain classes of investors to invest in those. Like I think pension funds and things, those are, that's why they're called junk bonds and they're very, very risky. That's why they have a high return because you need to incentivize people to actually uh, take part in that. Now that the fed is buying these junk bonds, it is, it's just so risky. It doesn't make sense. Like why these are obviously bad. You're buying bonds from companies that are being downgraded. Well, because they're already in trouble and there's no way that this is going to, they're going to be paid back. So uh, I don't know. It's just on a scale of profligacy that makes you say what's going on here. It's kind of funny that, you know, hedge funds, uh, pensions, endowments, they can't buy these, these junk bonds, but all of a sudden they're good enough for uh, the highest bank in the land, essentially the people that are footing and, and backing up the, the U.S. dollar completely. Kind of understanding that junk bonds, you know, wouldn't even be part of something that a large uh, institution would purchase or take part in uh, really kind of like helps you understand, you know, how crazy the situation is that now the Fed is taking part in essentially backing up these these junk corporations. Yeah, pension funds can't buy these, but the government can, and they are you know control uh, paying for Social Security and Medicare, and Medicaid. So I mean, it's it's really just a national pension fund. Uh, they can buy it, but the state pension funds or large pension funds can't do that. And you have another really interesting link here from uh, the St. Louis Fed about um, inflation expectations. Yeah, I just wanted to include that to show even with all of this uh, $7 trillion balance sheet, inflation expectations are at pretty much all-time lows. And the way they usually measure that is the five-year, five-year forward. And uh, you can find that on the Fed and, of course, uh, our Fred website. And I will link that in the show notes for you guys. But 
yeah, it is below where it has been for, gosh, the last 10 years. And I mean, it's kind of curving up now. Maybe there's starting to be some inflation expectations, but really, even with all this money printing, people are not expecting inflation. When you say people are not expecting inflation, does that, is that, are those like projections or is that like actually like money is being destroyed or the money supply is not expanding? This is just people's opinions. You know, this is just a ratio of different things in the market that has been recognized for a very long time as being an ex- inflation expectation of the market. You know, this is kind of measuring people who have skin in the game it's measuring what they think of the future. And this is telling us that they think there's going to be about 1.5% inflation in the next five years, which is historically low. Does that mean, I mean, the Fed has a mandate of 2% inflation. Does that mean that there could be increased uh, printing just to beat that, that mandate? Or is it something where, um, you know, they're not actively going for that 2% and, and, you know, they're just, they're just printing as they deem necessary. Oh man, I don't know. In the past, they surely looked at this kind of stuff and saw, tried to see how much room they had for more QE. But I think at this point, um, it's almost like, let's just throw everything at this. Um, they are kind of in a panic emergency mode. So um, I don't know if they're really looking at this right now. You've expressed that as debt around the globe, as debt within the euro dollar system um, is being repaid or or being defaulted on, that that actually destroys the money supply and lessens the money supply. Do you think that the people um, that are making these estimates are taking that into account? Like what is kind of going into, I mean, it's a difficult question to ask, but what, what is going into uh, making these predictions? Well, like I said, it's it's people putting skin in the game and you know, they're, they're making their best get like a market price. That's a market clearing price. And so um, it is a single price for one good is the summation of all that market activity around that good. And um, if you take a ratio of two different prices or two different things that are kind of core to uh, the functioning of the monetary system, then you can get a kind of expectation of the future. Uh, let's jump into the ECB away from the Fed. Uh, last time we talked about the ECB, we were covering the uh, German court ruling that said that QE by the ECB is illegal. I was reading a tweet today because I guess they had a pre- the the ECB had a press conference uh, this this morning uh, mm. talking about how QE has actually lessened wealth inequality, which I find is is kind of hilarious. You know what what are the updates on the European side of things? Uh, yeah, the biggest. I mean, the first time I prepared these notes, uh, they hadn't come out with their new round of of asset purchases. But now they have this new thing. It's called um, Pandemic Emergency Purchase Program or something like that, PEP. And it's uh, 1.35 trillion euros worth of more QE. And that just that just uh, was announced a couple days ago. So um, they're doing the same thing. They're probably going to see more inflation than uh, the U.S. is. And I haven't looked at those like their inflation expectations. But um, I bet that the QE is going to go more into into inflation over there. Is this going to trigger uh, German courts even further? It sounds like it's essentially in direct opposition to uh, the ruling there. Yeah, I don't know how many days they have left, probably about 45 days, because the German courts gave them 90 days. And we'll see what happens. This will be, there will be a lot of talk about it, I'm sure. And we will talk about it in the in future episodes. But uh, yeah, they still have roughly a month and a half to 
kind of come to some agreement. What are your anticipation there? Do you think that there's going to be an agreement or do you think that uh, it's just going to be ignored and, and they're going to put the ball back in German court, uh, in the German court to see, uh, you know, what, you know, what they do next? Yeah. Like call their bluff. They might do that, but there's already been some stuff. Like uh, I read an article on Finland, like the, the parliament up there, they rejected this recent QE program. Um, I don't know. I think it was this 1.35 trillion. So there are other countries out there in um, the Eurozone that are saying that they don't like this and that they are willing to vote against it. We'll see. It will all come to a head here in about a month. So, I mean, what happens if Finland says no? Like, do they have any voice here? Like, what I'm kind of thinking here is, like, is this inflation without representation? Is that, like, the new theme of of the Eurozone? (laughs) That's a good one. Um, It seems like it, yeah. You, I mean, they have a vote, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because uh, supposedly they gave up their sovereignty to the ECB. So this plays into this whole idea of, you know, getting your national sovereignty back, getting your regional sovereignty back, deglobalizing and, and decentralizing away from these corrupt governments. And this is a very good example of that. All right. Well, let's move into uh, the macro segment here. With all the riots, a lot of people have been speculating, how is this going to play out from a health perspective? Obviously, there is still like coronavirus hasn't gone anywhere, but people are kind of ignoring the best practices around social distancing and all that stuff. Uh, with these riots the last two weeks, you know, what are the stats around around coronavirus cases and, and other things related to macro? Well, I was just perusing Zero Hedge uh, before we ju- jumped on here, and I saw a uh, article saying that 26 states are seeing a surge in cases as well as like Spain, I believe is having another surge in cases. So this pandemic has not gone away. Um, We don't see as big a death toll or as, you know, overrun of hospitals this time because we have learned maybe how to treat it better. That's a free market thing, right? That the free market is solving this on its own. I don't believe necessarily in news causing certain, I mean, it could cause like a, an excuse to dump the market or something like that, but it doesn't like, it's not behind the reason why the market is dumping. So I think that, you know, it's overbought, the market's overbought uh, and it's just looking for something to turn around on. And it could be some report about coronavirus picking up in New York city again, who knows, but that could be an excuse to dump. You think that the market is overbought and uh, the big money here is waiting to exit. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things is when the news is right, that's when you that's when you act. Yeah, I mean, just like any blow off top, there's just FOMO and euphoria. I mean, look at the chart of the S&P 500. It's ridiculous. Uh, So eventually it it will happen just like any other blow off top. Uh, There's no more buyers and it drops. So. Um, that's what I expect. I have been noticing that there's just a lot. It really feels like 2017. Like I was new to crypto in 2017 and in kind of experiencing that and experiencing 2018, I feel like I'm getting a ton of deja vu today. Uh, I have like a 13 year old cousin who his dad opened a brokerage account uh, for him. He's trading like the shittiest shit there there is on the planet. We, you already stated the, the massive Robin Hood signups. Everyone's buying the dip. I have tons of friends that are, you know, buying puts and going long. You know, trading activity, especially without sports around, 
um, is really uh, coming into vogue. And I don't think these people have strong hands or, or are actually good investors. Yeah, that's a great point about sports because people do that. That gets a lot of their gambling out of their system is gambling on the, you know, Saturday or Sunday football or something. Um, yeah, that's very interesting. It's, it does all, all FOMOs and all market tops feel very similar. And the, the one in, in Bitcoin and altcoins was just incredible though. I don't think we're there yet for the S and P 500, but it is very, very frothy. That's for sure. Yeah, yeah, frothy is, is is a good way to put it. I've been following uh, Davy Day Trader, which is the the president of Barstool Sports. Uh, mm. Essentially, since sports kind of got canceled, he's been spinning up this day trading show where he <laughs> he he streams for an hour in the morning and then streams an hour to close the market. It is so funny. Like he's been like stocks only go up. Everything I buy is a winner. Boeing, airlines, cruises. You know, he's just shilling the shittiest shit. And, you know, he's, he's bragging about how much he's making and all these people are kind of just going along with it. And it just, see, it feels really crazy to me. Yeah. Well, some of these people might get arrested after this, who knows? Um, one of the issues with the ICO space was that it was so unregulated, these scams could go and no one would face any consequences. And even to this day, they really haven't uh, faced many consequences. So well, let's talk, let's talk about stable coins because it seems as though stable coins are continuing to pick up in their relevance. It seems as though uh, I, uh, Bank Frick just added USDC. Uh, it is definitely a crypto-friendly uh, European banking institution. So it's not like they are completely out of the, the cryptocurrency market. Um, but it seems as though the value of, you know, dollar dollar tokens on a blockchain uh you know these these uh, bare digital dollars is being realized um, by a greater and greater cohort of people yeah there's uh all sorts of reasons for dollar denominated altcoins to do not dollar denominated but dollar pegged altcoins to do really well i've been a fan of tether as you know and uh, also on my newsletters i started doing a tether dominance index so like everyone's doing a Bitcoin dominance index and this is like the big thing for the last probably four years, people have been hyping up like, oh, Bitcoin's dominance is falling relative to all coins. Well now, so I, I put out the Tether dominance index because I, I have a feeling that Tether's dominance is going to start creeping up, right? It's already at 10% of all altcoins is Tether. It's going to go up to 15 and then up to 20 and it's going to squeeze everybody. I also thought it was interesting with this... Um, Recently, they've talked about raising the gas limit on Ethereum due to congestion on the network. And, you know, Tether has something like 60% of the transactions or something on the Ethereum network. So now they're, they went to OMG. Is that, I don't even know how to say like, Omize. Omize go. Omize go. Yeah. Um, their, their network because Tether is just going to go through and suck the life out of every network. That's what's going to happen. It's just going to keep growing. Other stable coins might do the same thing, but Tether is by far the, the biggest player. So yeah, I think this is really bad for altcoins. So I think that's an interesting take because I feel like there's a lot of confident people in the Ethereum community right now. They're stoked about fees going up. They're stoked about Ethereum relevance continuing to increase. Is having a centralized stable coin that is multi-platform, multi-blockchain like Tether is that healthy for a blockchain's long-term future? 
Um, I could definitely understand arguments in both directions. I'm curious what you're thinking. No, it's absolutely detrimental to their long-term uh, prospects because it's going to clog the one it's going to clog their network. So they're going to have to pay higher fees, but also it's going to make nodes more expensive. It's going to centralize the whole system. And like right now, what's the current state of Ethereum? It's like 300 gigs. Maybe it's 400 gigs is the state. You know, if that continues to grow, you're never going to be able to sync a node. It's already really, really hard to become part of the Ethereum uh, network. And slowly but surely, it's just going to kill that, that whole that whole chain. It's going to squeeze out everything else. China has been making noise around putting out a digital currency. Um, mm-hmm. It sounds like officials now are coming out and, you know, trying to uh, pour some cold water on on the hysteria there. Um, what's the, the recent update with China and their uh, central bank digital currency? Well, there's not a ton of official news. I did find one article, I believe it was last week, you know, they've launched this trial in one of their provinces and with some uh, public industry, I believe it was like water or trash or something like that. And then all their, their employees were going to be paid a portion in this CBDC from the Chinese, the CCP. Anyway, so after about a week or two of that happening, this official comes out and is like, hey, you know, let's not get too ahead of ourselves. We're still testing this. This we're in a testing phase. And I interpreted that as like, well, they ran into some problems, you know, and they're not going to be able to launch it by maybe the the third quarter or, you know, whatever they had maybe promised to do. So I think that's an interesting development. So I find China to be really interesting because I don't understand what's the benefit of them uh, giving, uh, I guess, essentially bare asset features to their already digital currency, like through their walled garden with Alipay and WeChat, they have digital currency. Everyone's on it. It's very much a cashless society. Like what benefit do they stand to gain by essentially adding on the ability for those dollars to be quote unquote bare instruments outside of that, those walled gardens? Nothing, just the hype. They think there's something there. They've been sold the technology. And this ties into another thing that I'm, wanted to talk about was the survey from the UK, I believe it was, where they surveyed a bunch of European bankers about CBDCs. And they were said they were bullish CBDCs, but they were bearish blockchain. So they're already starting to move away from the need for blocks. And by the time that this stuff launches um, and is widely used at all, it's not even going to resemble an altcoin or resemble Bitcoin. So yeah, it's, we get to watch it in real time, them coming to the realization that R3 and a lot of other people that came in the space as altcoiners and now are Bitcoiners, they go along this journey. I don't know if you've seen that meme where it's like Bitcoin, it's a little brain, Bitcoin. Then a bigger brain, it's got three coins. Then it's bigger brain and it's got all these coins. And then eventually it's the biggest brain uh, most enlightened one is back down to Bitcoin again. And so I think that's the cycle that they're going to go through, just like everybody does. So speaking of Bitcoin, we have uh, we have some cool stats here. It's been very interesting watching the Bitcoin network adjust to the 6.25 block um, reward era. Why don't we walk through some of these Bitcoin fundamentals? Yeah, I like that segue. That was real good. <laughs> yeah, so hash rates up 10% after a roughly a 10% drop in difficulty on the last difficulty adjustment. Now it looks like there's a 
going to be a 10% increase in difficulty coming up here just within a few days. What a two week um, swing. Yeah, it's crazy. And that's all with price being flat. You know, price has been 9,500 basically for the last three weeks and the hash rate has swung wildly. So uh, what else do we have here? Fees. Well, let me comment on that really quick. Let me comment on the, on the hash rate swing. So I was doing a drinks in quarantine two weeks ago uh, that was titled having analysis. And we had some really fantastic guests on there. And one of them is actually one of my favorite uh, commentators in the mining spaces, Christy Lay Minahan at Ogata girl Mm -hmm. on Twitter. And she was saying like, look, it's wet season in China. People are taking this opportunity to unplug their machines and move them. And that hash rate is not going anywhere. And several of the other um, experts in the space, you know, kind of backed up that assessment in it. I mean, that's exactly what it looks like here. Hash rate drops a combination of like, you know, uh, was it 15% over the course of four weeks? And then we're back to where we were before. Yeah. Yeah. She has great insight being over there with, uh, didn't she worked within like chip fabrication, didn't she? Is that what she did? Uh, she, she's been everywhere. She started with Genesis Mining and then Core Scientific. Mm. And now I think she's just a consultant, but um, she's everywhere. She's, she's been in China. She knows all the manufacturers. She's, she's really deep in the space. So highly recommend Christy. Uh, she's a phenomenal resource. Yeah, I've listened to her on POV a couple times, I think. Yeah, it makes sense to me. And I, I am not worried at all about the hash rate. I, I did see something where one of the provinces might be cracking down slightly on mining. So that might also have something to do with it for like a kind of a temporary um, decrease in hash rate while they move to a different area. Uh, I don't know. Fees did drop substantially. Like, you know, we saw fees really spike uh, after mm-hmm. the halving because blocks were coming slow. Miners were coming off the off the, the network. But now it seems as though fees have normalized quite a bit. Um, what's your assessment of the current uh, fee market? Well, it looks like what? About half a Bitcoin per block is what the fees total now. Um, that's pretty good. I mean, as the... Um, block reward goes down, the percentage that the fees pay is going to go up. And it's working perfectly well the way it's designed to. I would be worried if for some reason we saw a, like a halving and then blocks were shrinking, transaction volume was shrinking. Uh, That would mean to me like, oh, this design doesn't work. But right now everything's full up. We're pressing up on the top of the block size like 1.3 megabytes. I don't know what the block weight was at that time, but it was up there. It's working exactly as designed. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about price. Uh, you know, I recently interviewed Kyle Davies for POV Crypto. Uh, he's a phenomenal, um, you know, again, another phenomenal resource in the space. Uh, he He's the co-founder of Three Arrows. And he's talk- he was talking about that he sees a lot of resistance at the, the 10K Bitcoin price. You know, it has been kind of like, holding in between 9,500 and 10K. Uh, do you have any analysis around uh, Bitcoin's price and um, you know how long are we going to stay flat here? I, I've thought it was going to consolidate after the big push up before the halving. It makes sense that it's around a, the psychological $10,000 barrier. Long-term, I'm very bullish. I'm bullish you know, starting in July and August. I think that's when we're going to really start seeing some bigger moves. But uh, for the time being, yeah, it makes sense to consolidate especially with all of the traditional markets, they there's a lot of drama going on there. So Bitcoin will just keep being a store value, going to the right on the chart, and then start going up later this year. 
both of us believe that the current uh, increase in prices are unsustainable. Again, there's a lot of weak hands and and uh, and dumb money in the traditional market space right now. If we see a substantial dump in uh, in the traditional markets, do you anticipate another dump in Bitcoin, or um, or have all the weak hands already been shaken out from a couple months ago? No, I think Bitcoin can dump, but not nearly as much. But I do think I'm kind of scared for the altcoins because like Ethereum is very leveraged long. The Ethereum grayscale trust is like has a premium of 700 or 800%. And so I think the altcoin space is really hyped up for altcoin season. They're very leveraged. And if we do have another sell-off in traditional markets that does affect Bitcoin and altcoins, then uh, I think altcoins have a lot farther to drop. So Bitcoin will drop, but I think it will be much more stable this time. All right, last on Bitcoin, and then we can move to our exiting segment. But Bitcoin Core 0.20 came out last week. Aaron Van Worden covered it on Bitcoin Magazine. It's already up to 10% adoption, and I think is the fifth most significant client across Bitcoin nodes. Uh, do you have any commentary around you know, how quickly 0.20 uh, was picked up? They, um, I like their schedule that they keep and they've made really good improvements each time. I mean, it's slow and steady and measured the way that they go about their development. Uh, This is a pretty nice big round number. So maybe some people were thinking, oh, you know, we're going to wait till we're not going to upgrade 0.19. We're going to wait for 0.20. So maybe that's why they did it. And it, it jumped up in adoption. I don't know. So Ansel, our last segment, we want to keep this a little lighter. We want to kind of talk about um, a couple of other things that are just outside of, you know, strictly covering the numbers. But if you were to live in the Western Hemisphere outside of the U.S. or Canada, where would you want to be? And I don't even know why you'd want to go to Canada at this point. I think Francis Poyot is trying to get the hell out of there. Oh, man. I put these questions on here and I I didn't even think about it myself. I was was planning to ask you, but uh, let's see. I think I I really like Mexico. I don't like the violence, but uh, I'm bullish on Mexico. And um, I'd probably stick around the north half of the Western Hemisphere. So maybe Costa Rica or Mexico, something like that. What about you? Yeah, Mexico jumps out as a place. It it just seems like it's the most free market economy uh, in North America right now. I mean, obviously, the U.S. is is the top dog, but uh, things are a little weird here. Uh, Canada is really showing some crazy signs of totalitarianism, especially Mm -hmm. in the French-speaking provinces of of Quebec. Uh, That's where Francis is at. He can't get a flight out. Uh, He's complaining that you... uh, He can't get a flight out, really. Yeah, his flights keep getting canceled. He's trying to get out. Mexico's warm, great food, uh, access to the U.S., and... You know, despite the violence, it seems as though it's 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 poised to thrive as kind of being in between uh, South America and the U.S. Yeah, and they have a lot of natural resources and things, um, so I think it's good. And and if if these riots end up leading to maybe like a legalization of drugs in the U.S., that could really go a long way to cleaning up Mexico. So um, I think I'm bullish. So if you were in Mexico, would you rather be in an urban citadel or a rural citadel? Uh, you go first on this one. Oh, man, it's easy. It has to be a rural, a rural citadel, at least for, yeah. for, for safety's sake. Uh, I think the cities in Mexico um, are definitely uh, not the safest place in the world. Um, maybe Mexico City, but, uh, you know, again, Mexico is an absolutely beautiful country, a ton of resources, a uh, great place to be out in the country. Yeah, the only thing I think about is in 
the in the country it's it's just there's not very many resources there's not a big market there so um uh, that would be one benefit of having an urban citadel but it would be harder to uh protect so you got your give and take i would probably pick rural as well so i kind of want to bring this back to the the opposite question of the first but which countries across the globe would you just not touch with a 10 foot pole right now? Like which countries scare you the most and and scare you the most for their citizens? Greece, Italy, China. And why in particular? Because uh, Greece and Italy are going to get the short end of the stick uh, when the Euro, when the Eurozone breaks up and uh, China, because they've reached the end of this great big expansionary cycle and they have a massive population and, you know, it's going to, it's going to be really hard for them. So it's probably going to be pretty crazy and socially in China over the next couple decades. How do you think that affects Hong Kong? Like where's the China, Hong Kong dynamic kind of coming into play there? Oh man, I've kind of given up on Hong Kong. I think it's over. I think that unfortunately that great city, a great example of free markets triumphing over, you know, communism basically that they it's, it's dead now. People should be getting out. Yeah, my new roommate, he's actually from Hong Kong, and he was telling me that all of his friends have, are gone. Um, essentially, in, in, even in uh, 20, or sorry, 1994, uh, when Hong Kong was given back to China, um, essentially every family with money found out how to get their, their kids some sort of alternative citizenship, um, whether it's the UK or the US or somewhere else in Europe. Uh, so it sounds as though like we're getting a, there's a brain drain out of Hong Kong. There's probably a drain on assets out of Hong Kong. And uh, now with with uh, the U.S. Uh, revoking Hong Kong's kind of special trade privileges, uh, now there's no longer even banking benefits uh, to being in Hong Kong. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, it's going to be a dramatic decline. And China, I think, is going to decline itself. But uh, Hong Kong being this, like, what do they call it, the Pearl of the Orient or something like that, it is going to be the most dramatic uh, change in Hong Kong. I don't it's very sad. So last thing I want to talk about, I've been noticing, at least amongst like the social media circles that I am in, and, you know, uh, amongst the quote unquote normies in my generation, that there is this really strong push towards anti-capitalist rhetoric. And I'm curious how you feel about the youth in America and their under one, their understanding of, of, the value in markets and this kind of like tendency towards social justice and, um, and this bias against free markets. Oh man, that's there. There's so much wrapped up there. Um, I think that the, so you're talking America specifically, or you're talking about the world. I mean, it could be the world, but I can only, I'm only observing from, from my generation of Americans. Um, well, I mean, like we've mentioned here in the past where the income is flat or down for 30 years and we are maybe our generation or our kids generation, they're going to be worse off than we are and that we are than our parents are. And so there is this uh, really understandable kind of uh, resentment towards the system. Um, Of course, I believe that they are misidentifying crony capitalism for capitalism, you know, the Cantillion effect, they're, they're mistaking that for capitalism. But uh, I, I almost think it's, it's an inevitability. There's a current. The current's going out, right? And uh, are you going to try to fight the current 
somehow, or are you just going to try to find out how to benefit from that and how to uh, keep yourself safe and make the most of it? This was definitely a uh, completely packed episode. We talked about a ton of different stuff, jumped around. Would love to get the listeners' feedback on the new format. Uh, Do you like the extra focus on Bitcoin? Uh, Do you like the kind of random questions at the end? Uh, I had a good time running through this. Uh, Ansel, for those who want to learn more about your work, where can they find you? Bitcoinmarkets.com. Twitter is Ansel Lindner. Um, I just want to replay this. You can cut this part out if you want, but the, uh, the four sections are Fed, Macro, Bitcoin, and then questions. So that's what we're going to try to stick with. No, oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, would love the feedback there. You guys can find me at CK underscore Snarks. You can find this podcast on Bitcoin Magazine podcast. You can also find Bitcoin in Asia, uh, which is turning into quite a fantastic show from John Good Riggins. One. And uh, lastly, Aaron Van Wordham is working on the Bitcoin Developer Podcast. Uh, so that's a project between him and myself. And we're really going to try to uh, take deep dives on each individual people who are working on Bitcoin, the projects they're working on and, and hone in on there. Like no one, no one like Aaron can, can dive into it. So great stuff coming out of Bitcoin Magazine. So please hit the subscribe button. Please give us a review. We really appreciate it. And we really appreciate the help bringing Bitcoin knowledge to the world. I'm looking forward to that podcast. A quick reminder that all of the content in this episode is for informational and entertainment purposes only. You should not construe the information as legal, tax, investment, financial, or any other advice. Nothing contained in this presentation constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, or offer by BTC Media, the Let's Talk Bitcoin Podcast Network, or any third-party service provider to buy or sell securities or any other financial instruments. Do your own research.